Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. Uh, good morning. Uh, today, uh, God speaks to us from Psalm 12, and I will be reading in Spanish. Sálvanos, Señor, que ya no hay gente fiel. Entre los seres humanos ya no hay en quien confiar. No hacen sino mentirse unos a otros. Sus labios son adudadores e hipócritas. Corte el Señor todo labio lisonjero y toda lengua jactanciosa. Que dice, venceremos con la lengua, en nuestros labios confiamos. ¿Quién puede dominarnos a nosotros? Por la aflicción de los oprimidos y por el gemido del pobre voy a levantarme, dice el Señor. Y los pondré a salvo de quienes los oprimen. Las palabras del Señor son puras, son como la plata refinada, siete veces purificada en el crisol. Tú, Señor, los protegerás. Tú siempre los defenderás de esta gente. Los malvados merodean por todas partes cuando la vileza es exaltada entre los seres humanos. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Thank you. So last week. Uh, we started our Lent series, uh, the series uh, we've, been, we've entitled The Formative Power of Lament. Uh, if you were not here last week, I would highly encourage you to go back, if you're able, uh, and listen to that sermon. I think in large part because we tried to set the, the, uh, the foundation for what we're going to be doing over the next uh, several weeks. Uh, what we did is we considered the reasons why uh, we um, ought to engage in this very powerful formative practice of lament, um, and it's the reason being that we're emphasizing this, and we do emphasize it every year during the season, is because often uh, prayers of lament are not prayers that we're usually familiar with, uh, but prayers of lament from a biblical perspective, they're prayers that give language to suffering, uh, that give language to the uncertainties of life. Uh, lament names that suffering, it questions God in the midst of that suffering, uh, but it also inserts reminders of salvation that is available. Lament uh, refuses uh, to allow us to be apathetic toward or passive around or accepting of suffering, but it also refuses to allow despair and a lack of hope to settle in. These, this is the powerful rhythm uh, of lament. And what we saw last week is that the people of Israel whose hymnal was the book of Psalms. Right? These were the songs that they sang over and over and over again. What we saw is that uh, 40% of their prayers and songs were songs of lament. They knew the power of lament, the formative power of lament, and they insisted on ensuring that they had rhythms of lament in their regular rhythms of worship. Today, however, as we considered again last week, is that uh, while Israel had 40% of their hymnal as lament, uh, less than 5% of the most popular contemporary songs today uh, could be classified as lament. Uh, we often don't know how to let suffering shape us because we often lack the language, especially in the West, and in particular, statistically, in the white Western world, uh, so often rejects the notions of a good God who also allows suffering I mean, we see this over and over again. Many people's faith in the West is tanked by the presence of suffering, in part because less than 5% of our most formative prayers, formative songs, center on lament. And so in this series, we want to confront those realities 
by embracing a radically God-centered approach to suffering that provides both hope in the midst of it, but also moves us toward action in confronting it. Again, I'd encourage you, uh, if you're able, to go back and listen to last week for some of the, a, a fuller take on that basic foundation of what lament is. Now, all that said, for the upcoming weeks, including today, we're going to be looking at various tension points that arise in the midst of suffering. Uh, we're going to see how the Psalms tell us about the confusion that can come in the midst of suffering, uh, the resignation that tends to creep in, uh, the silence of God at times in the midst of suffering, and what we're supposed to do with that perceived silence. But today, what we're going to do is we're going to consider the deception that tends to be present in the midst of suffering, in particular to look at the lack of truth that can so often pervade our uh, understanding of suffering. And what we want to do uh, to do that, we're going to look at three things today. We're going to look first at the uncertainty of truth, the struggle for truth, and then finally the embodiment of truth. So let's consider those three things to consider what deception often looks like in the midst of our sufferings. First, the uncertainty of truth. So in the opening verses of the psalm, you can hear the frustration of the psalmist who is King David. This is what David says in verse 1. He says, Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. In other words, he's, he's lamenting the lack of faithfulness, the lack of truth that seems to be around him. Seems like everyone seems to be lying. No one seems trustworthy. Everyone seems to harbor some measure of deception within them. And then even more, look at verse uh, 7. He says, in the midst of this lament, he says, you, Lord, will help the needy. Uh, you will help, I'm sorry, you, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us forever from the wicked. Something I find interesting about David's lament here is that he recognizes that deception and deceit, uh, this deception and deceit that burden him, it does have a particular impact on the needy. It's interesting that deception and lies have a particular impact on the vulnerable amongst us. At the root of so much of the deception that exists uh, is people often centering themselves, doing whatever they need to do in order to benefit themselves. I mean, these are the things that David was lamenting thousands of years ago. It's also, though, very much the case. And we recognize what he's talking about here. When deception is present, when people are centering themselves, seeking to benefit themselves, it affects all of us. And I do think it's also interesting that he highlights the impact that such deception has on the most vulnerable. And that's a point that we could take in one particular direction. I'm not going to do that today, but it is interesting that he highlights that. What I want to look at today, though, in the midst of all of this, is a more fundamental issue that I think we deal with today. There's another challenging reality for us in modern day, which I think really gets at the core of what David is lamenting here, and that is simply this. As he's describing what it means to be in this environment of deceit and unfaithfulness, again, something we may understand, one of the things that I think we are constantly confronted by today is that we don't actually know how to define truth. So in one sense, sense we want to lament deceit and lies, but it's hard to do so when we aren't quite even sure 
what truth is, let alone how to promote truth. And what comes to mind for me is, do you remember the, the question that Pilate asked Jesus before the crucifixion? Pilate sees interrogating Jesus uh, about being king of the Jews. And in his response, this is what Jesus says. Jesus says, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And then Pilate responds famously, what is truth? I mean, could there be a question that better summarizes so much of what we face today in modern day? I mean, forget about the notions of like deception and deceit for a minute. What is truth? I mean, we live in a day today where any attempt at truth claims is often met with resistance, if not outright fury. I mean, I don't know where you maybe find yourselves at times, but we do live in a time when claims of truth are decried as oppressive. No one gets to claim what is true. Your truth is your truth. My truth is my truth. The lack of agreement on what truth is does end up bringing struggle, hardship, and inability to have meaningful conversation when we can't even agree about what is true or even where the source of truth comes from. Which brings us, secondly, to the struggle for truth. Uh, one of the reasons I think that we often struggle to accept truth claims uh, is because of the narratives that we uh, often uh, engage with and allow to shape us. Uh, and those narratives really do undermine the whole notion of truth, and it does leave us in a place of uh, um, incoherence as we begin to describe and talk about things related to truth. Um, at the heart of our inability to answer Pilate's question, what is truth, are again some of these forces that we've allowed to shape us. And for a little bit, I want to maybe just take you a little bit down a rabbit hole of some philosophical uh, approaches to trying to understand truth. I promise I'm going to have a point, but track with me for a minute, because I do think that this whole notion of truth today, it does become wildly disorienting for people, right? It becomes, actually, it leads many people to a breaking point, not really having any real sense of what they can uh, grab onto as being objectively true, right? How did we get to a point where we can't agree that a single truth even exists? Maybe, uh, maybe give you a little bit of an overview. There's a, a philosopher, um, Alistair McIntyre, who's a very well-known philosopher, who was actually not a, he, he became a Christian, but he was actually not a Christian during much of his writing. And what he was doing was he was trying to assess contemporary culture, uh, culture that's kind of shaped by modern and postmodern uh, philosophical ideas. Um, and so he's writing on and, uh, the, this kind of shifting cultural moment that we've been in. And in an attempt to define the current uh, moral landscape, right, our foundations of what is true, he describes what he calls emotivism. Right? He, he says that we live in this, uh, this era of emotivism. And again, just for a minute, track with me for, uh, as I kind of unpack that a bit. Philosophers tend to be completely incapable of saying anything simply. So I'm going to try my best to like pare this thing down a little bit. But I do think it's actually very helpful and I think resonates. It would probably, it'll probably resonate with many of us. But this is what he says. Okay, emotivism is the doctrine that all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling. And as a result, he goes on to say that moral judgments are neither true nor false, an agreement in moral judgment 
is not to be secured by any rational method, for there are none. In other words, many of us have been shaped by the notion that we cannot know objective truth, and that truth cannot actually rationally be known. And so consequently, things like our moral judgments and conclusions, they lose all objectivity, all obligatory power, and everyone has their own sense of what is true for themselves. And your understanding of what is true for yourself can't be questioned because someone else's uh, perspective might be different, but rather it's yours. And because it's yours, it's true. Now, I will say that pe people have begun to recognize how untenable that is. Truth cannot possibly be at the discretion of every person. Otherwise, we're not talking about truth anymore. But broadly speaking, many have no real sense of what ought to be our foundation for what truth is. We are still unsure about how to insist on a truth that we are all obligated to obey. And this, I think, has resulted in two consequences that, again, bring some people to a breaking point. And I, it actually makes David's lament so palpable to us. There's two things in particular. There's probably many more, but I think there's two consequences that have flown out of this. The first would be manipulative power grabs. I'll explain what I mean by that in a second. But the second thing is also a moral confusion. Let me just speak to those quickly. So first, the manipulative power grabs. So without this, uh, this objectivity of truth, outside of personal preference, we all look for ways to promote our own personal sense of morality as a way of resisting other people's sense of morality that doesn't align with myself. And in that kind of environment, uh, McIntyre, the, the philosopher, talks about this. The only thing that's really left when you're in an environment like that is power and manipulation to convince others that you are right. And this is actually the nature of the culture wars that we're currently living in the midst of. In a world where objective truth doesn't exist, the best we can do is try to manipulate and force each other to adhere to our beliefs. So whoever has the power gets to set the moral agenda. And with that power, I will make you submit to whatever I deem as best. My friends, we currently live in a time when this is the way many approach establishing a moral agenda. I mean, civil debate, conversation, disagreement are rapidly getting thrown out because we are losing this centralized objectivity from which we have debate on a whole host of issues. And so the only tool left, I'm mean, probably the best example of leveraging power is the power of the state. I mean, right now, the way you set the moral agenda is to ensure you have a certain number of representatives from your party in Congress. That's the pathway. You ensure that the presidency represents your own personal perspectives. You stack the court with your personal perspectives. All of this is, in a, is um, for the purpose of leveraging power to demand or insist that other people are obliged to your personal perspective. And we see that across the entire political spectrum. And then in that environment, everyone then becomes an enemy to defeat. And now for Christians, in theory, there, this, there ought to be a rejection of this whole notion of emotivism and the manipulative practices that come as a result. But in practice, there have been many who have bought into this belief that leveraging power and manipulative relationships are the way you get things done. I mean, we're watching it in real time. 
as Christians lose their place of dominance and cultural influences, there's a growing willingness to just pragmatically go after a by-any-means-necessary mentality to reinsert influence through power. I mean, we're seeing it in real time where the, the Beatitudes of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, blessed are the merciful, blessed are the peace, peacemakers. That all sounds like weakness to many today. Winning by any means necessary really has become too much of an instinct for many. And it flows out of that lack of centralized, objective truth that we can claim. But in addition, and it's related, this lack of definable and objective truth, it's also led to a significant moral confusion within our culture today. And again, McIntyre, he, he uh, focuses on this. But he essentially talks about how this moral confusion, and the confusion being there's a variety of different perspectives on what is good, right, true, just. As a result of that, everyone just is able to now create their own um, internal logic to justify their personal belief system. So if moral judgments right, are, are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of an attitude or a feeling, then who's to say that my perspective is wrong? I'll just create my own sense of internal logic behind what I've claimed to be true. And he gives a bunch of examples of how this has been uh, the case amongst the most pressing, in, you know, within the most pressing issues of our day. Right? All of these issues, right, no matter where you land on each of these issues, they all have their own internal logic to them. Right? So both sides of an issue, on issues like war, or abortion, or gun control, or immigration, or corporate business practices, or sexual ethics, and so much more. No matter what perspective one might take, everyone's created their own internal logic that their perspective is true. I mean, for decades, we've been endlessly fighting about all kinds of different things, all kinds of different issues. Again, McIntyre, he focuses in on a couple of them, but for decades, we've been endlessly fighting about what constitutes life. Oh, my goodness. Thank you, Siri, for your contributions. Um, for decades, we've been uh, arguing endlessly about what constitutes life and when life begins, who ultimately has agency about whether or not that life is to be kept or ended. There have been, there's been no agreement for many years about what constitutes sexual freedom, sexual immorality, I mean, we've said this before, but the best that we've been able to come up with in this arena is the low-hanging fruit of consent. I mean, obviously, that's a non-negotiable, but is that really all that we can come up to it with as we try to navigate sexual ethics and sexual morality? Plus, this is a bit of a side note, but even when consent is present, consent being the only real sexual ethic assumes that people still aren't victimized even when consent is actually present. And then on top of that, what is sex even? I'm not even sure that we could like, agree on that. How then do we have any clarity about what is true and moral about sex? What do we do when we don't agree about how to talk about issues like gender or the nature of our bodies? How does one move forward in claiming what is right and true when we can't agree about the most basic things about who we are? What do we do when there's a constant insistence that we flatten the complexity of issues that we face today. Flatten the complexity of the conflict in the Middle East or healthcare access or countless other issues that really don't seem to have any simple solution. 
What do we do in the midst of that? It creates a moral confusion and no one seems to have a path forward because everyone's perspective seems to make sense in their own internal logic. And the point is simply this, that there is moral confusion when we cease believing that there is objective truth and that morality, for example, is an expression, ought to be an expression, an outworking of that objective truth. Instead, it's just become an expression of our preference. And while these, the, these debates, they've always existed, the contemporary consequences have actually left to, uh, left, led us to verse 8, actually in very profound ways. Look at what verse 8 says. Well, let me start in verse 7. So verse 7 says, You, Lord, will keep the needy safe and will protect us from the wicked. This verse 8, who freely strut about when what is vile is honored by the human race. It's interesting that there comes a time in the midst of deception and moral confusion when what is vile, what's dishonoring to God, what's worthy of God's judgment is viewed as honorable because we can easily create our own justifications for our own sense of morality. And in the midst of such confusion, I again remind us, of Pilate's words, they hit us fresh. What is truth? And the lack of clarity that we have to answering that question, the lack of commitment we have to that answer, leads us to the heart of David's lament. Help, Lord, for no one is faithful anymore. Those who are loyal have vanished from the human race. Everyone lies to their neighbor. They flatter with their lips, but harbor deception in their hearts. I'm painting a bit of a doom and gloom picture of our culture right now. Um, I'm doing it on purpose, in large part because I really want to drive this next point home. I tend to not, I try to not be super doom and gloom, but to present this doom and gloom so that we very much feel the weight of what I'm about to say. Because in the midst of all this confusion, there are a variety of different perspectives, a variety of different ways to engage that confusion, that Christian uh, we are all capable of uh, engaging with. But there's one in particular that I absolutely need us to walk away with today. In the midst of this confusion, this uncertainty, and a lack of clarity about what is true, a necessary response, the instinctual and initial posture of the Christian must be lament. Must be lament. Why? Christian, I want you to hear that in the midst of this great confusion, your posture needs to be lamented for two reasons. The first would be this. In the midst of that kind of confusion, lament orients us properly. What I mean by that is lament, again, we've said this, names the brokenness that comes as a result of all this confusion. Right? The lack of truth that pervades our time. It names it. But it then demands that we then subject ourselves to what we believe to be objective truth by orienting ourselves toward the source of all truth, which is God himself. I mean, remember what lament is. It's not just crying out. It's not just questioning. It's not just naming what is going on. But it's doing those things before God, to God, at God. It's an insistence that there is a God who transcends our finitude, who knows things beyond our knowledge, whose plans are beyond our comprehension. Lament is the insistence that there is a source of objective truth. 
and that regardless of my personal desires and perspectives on what is good, or right, or true, or just, there is a God whose will supersedes mine. Lament leads us to say in the words of Jesus, not my will, but yours be done. And some of us here maybe have been too easily, we've bought in too much into the confusion of the day. Maybe even believing in some sense that our understanding of what is right and wrong and justifiable is actually what is true. When in reality, what we need first is to lament where we are, this confusion, and orienting ourselves back toward God, the source of all truth. But the second one, I actually think is probably um, even more needed, especially amongst us here who would claim Christ. And that would be lament. It not only uh, brings us back to God, right? Again, orienting ourselves back toward him, but it also brings a tenderness to us. Lament recognizes that the pervasive confusion of our day is not how things should be. Many, including ourselves at times, we can get lost and trapped in that confusion And as a result, lament makes us tender and compassionate toward those, uh, and even ourselves, who get caught up in that confusion. And I emphasize this because, Christian, my heart breaks for how often we lack tenderness and compassion for those with whom we might disagree, or for those who might believe differently than we do. I mean, this is the case for how Christians respond to one another. It's especially the case for how Christians treat others who are not Christians. I see that lack of tenderness in myself. I see that lack of tenderness amongst us at times. And of course, I see it more broadly in the church as well. And it's not okay. Years ago, uh, I once heard someone say, I cannot remember his name. I wish I could. But he was, he was talking about uh, what it means to stand for truth. And it's always stuck with me. But this is what he said. He said that truth without tears is self-righteousness. And the point he was making that is if, if we can proclaim what is true to those that we believe have been deceived, but we do so without tenderness and compassion toward them, our proclamations of truth is just self-righteousness. Truth without tears is self-righteousness. And I speak as one who's been very guilty of this. But this has become too often the standard operating system for many Christians right now. And it's worth our lament. Because lament actually brings that tenderness. A a perfect example of what this, this tenderness looks like is in Luke 19, this famous story, when Jesus is about to cleanse the temple in Jerusalem, if you remember that story. He drives out those that he said had made the the house of prayer into a den of thieves. He rebukes them severely. But do you know what is described just before Jesus enters Jerusalem? Knowing the deception that's pervasive in the city, Luke describes this, that when he drew near and saw the city, Jesus wept over it. Before bringing his proclamation of truth, before he brings this rebuke to the temple, he laments and weeps before he does. And I wonder, friends, if Jesus needed lament and tears before entering Jerusalem to confront the deceptions of his city, how much more 
Do we need laments and tears before we enter our city to do the same? In the midst of all the confusions, Christians ought to be a people who are oriented toward God as their source of truth and to also be a people of tenderness and compassion, both of which flow out of lament. Now, having said that, I want, us bring us, I want to bring us back to David's lament and Pilate's question, what is truth? Because we're kind of talking around it, but there actually is an answer to that question. What is truth? And that's what I want to look at finally. So let me bring us back to our psalm. So in verses 1 through 4, we see David's uh, lament. Uh, the, 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 the lament that he sees about this deception that's all around him. And God responds to David in verse 5, but then in verse 6, we see David's hope of what truth is. This is what he says in verse 6. He says, And the words of the Lord are flawless, like silver purified in a crucible, like gold refined seven times. Interesting. I love the way he describes it. The words of the Lord are flawless. In other words, the Lord is truth. What is truth? The Lord is truth. Now that question from Pilate about truth, it's also important to know, it's recorded in the book of John. Um, And John also records in his opening chapter that Jesus is the word, if you remember. For David, the words of the Lord are flawless. And that is his hope. And according to John, those words are embodied in the person and work of Jesus, who would later in John 14 proclaim to be the truth. So the answer to the question, what is truth, is Jesus. Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the flawless word of God. And I emphasize this because if we want to anchor our morality, it needs to be anchored in Jesus, the word and the truth. If we want to have clarity in answering the questions that are before us, Right, to, f- to begin navigating the confusion of our day, the way that we do that is by looking to truth, Jesus, the flawless one. And should we ever doubt that Jesus is the truth? You know, the one thing that the season of lament reminds us of, the season of Lent, it reminds us that in the midst of all this confusion, we're actually longing for the ultimate event that vindicates Jesus as being everything we claim to be we claim him to be, which is the resurrection. We can trust that Jesus is truth embodied by looking at the resurrection. It's at the resurrection that Jesus proves all that he says he was about himself. And at the end of this season of lament, at the end of the season of Lent, we will celebrate that day. But for right now, it's at least worth noting that if we truly want to understand how to answer that question, what is truth? If we want to be able to rightly engage with the brokenness and the uncertainty and the confusion of our day, all of this requires us to center whatever answers we come up with on Jesus, the Word of God, the flawless Word of God. My hope would be that as we begin to lament, as we fix our eyes back on Him, orienting ourselves back toward Him, as we allow His tenderness, His compassion shape us in such a way that we then are able to respond to the world with a similar kind of uh, tenderness and compassion. 
that we'd actually then begin to experience the hope that he provides as being the flawless word of, word of the Lord. And I do, I do think, in the end, that begins to help us engage the suffering and the confusion of the world better than I think we probably have been. That would be my prayer for us personally, be my prayer for us as a church, and I pray that does present something different to a world who right now is longing for some way to navigate the confusing times that we live in. I pray that we as a church would be just that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are the source of all truth, that there is a way for us to be able to navigate the confusing times in which we live. And that is by looking to you. I pray that you would remind us that you are truly the objective source of all truth. And in a time that can often feel so confusing in answering Pilate's question, we do not need to be uncertain about what truth is because you are truth. And we thank you for Jesus, the embodiment of that truth. I pray that as, again, we navigate the confusing times in which we live, we would always bring ourselves back to him. And that we would also experience the the tenderness and the compassion that he has for those that are trapped in the midst of such confusion. Make us a people that reflect something different to a world that's so often trapped in that confusion. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.